Chapter Sixteen of Lancashire by Francis Archibald Bruton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. The Millstone Grit Country. In the last chapter, we have been speaking of the western sandstone plain. Further north, and especially round Clitheroe, Hampsfell, Wharton Crag, and the Kent Estuary, and up towards Greygarth, the special features of the limestone country are in evidence though to nothing like the same extent as in Yorkshire, Derbyshire and Somerset. But to the southerner, who is seeing Lancashire for the first time, it is the high moorlands of the millstone grit that are such a revelation and fascination, while to many of those who are Lancashire-born, they are as the very breath of life. I write as one who for more than a quarter of a century has turned week by week to these wild breezy uplands for rest and recreation and inspiration, has found them an unfailing tonic and is ever discovering in them new beauties. As has already been explained, these moorlands are closely associated with the industrial districts, are almost, as it were, interwoven with them, and this of necessity because the millstone grit naturally crops out round the margin of the coal-field. The prominent points, pikes they call them here, and some of the escarpments, are marked by beacon towers or monuments, among which stand out Peel Tower on Holcombe Hill, Studley Pike near Todmorden, this is across the border, but a useful guide, Grant's Tower, the memorial of the Cheerable Brothers, on top of the hoof, Hartshead Pike near Mossley, the Victoria Tower on Darwen Moor, the Sea Mark on Billinge Hill near Wigan, the Beacon Tower on Rivington, and, may we add, the beautiful Tudor residence known as Horton Towers, between Preston and Blackburn. And these are useful landmarks to the wanderer over the moors, as we have seen in an earlier chapter, these lofty uplands occur in great masses, a broad band passing up the eastern border and sweeping round the north of the coalfield, two bold masses protruding, as it were, right through it into the centre, and a great area appearing north of the Ribble. To those who make these moors their happy hunting ground for health and recuperation, they afford endless variety in their changing moods as the seasons succeed one another. In the depths of winter, the snow and ice effects are exceptionally fine, whether on the open moor, where the white garments of the hills, often thrown into lovely folds, while the sides of the old pack-horse tracks are hung with huge icicles, form such a contrast to the dark country far below, or in the gullies, where the cascades are frozen into masses of blue ice, sugared over with powdered snow. For the sides of these great hill-masses are seamed and scored with cloughs, and the steeper faces, with long gashes, called in Lancashire gates, down which the water pours in white torrents after heavy rains. In the ravines that run far back into the hills, dying out sometimes almost at their summits, as Ogden Clough, for example, dies out almost on the summit of Pendle, the rocks are clothed with the varied green of the mosses, the slopes are often wooded, the mountain ash occurring frequently, and there is sometimes a thick undergrowth of bramble and wild raspberry. On the broader slopes, the changing hues, the short-lived amethyst of the heather, the fresh spring green followed by the glory of the autumn gold of the bracken, the various shades given by the combination of the many moorland plants here engaged in the struggle for existence, the bilberry, the cowberry, the crowberry, with their tiny rose-tinted bell-like flowers, the delicate white blossom of the cloudberry on the higher hills, the soft woolly pure white tufts of the cotton grass, the brilliant emerald of the sphagnum that gleams in patches that are washed by the purest water, contrasting strongly with the dark, almost smoky green of the polytrichum, 
the orange-gold bloom of the bog asphodel, Lancashire's own flower. The sight of all these is the rich reward of those who will at all seasons choose to breast these free, open moors, whose breezes never fail to blow away the cobwebs of life from the tired brain. And towering above all are the huge masses of black grit, piled one upon the other, or hurled broadcast as though by some titan or cyclops, split and carved and grooved by wind and frost and driven sand, looming sometimes through the mist, now like frowning castles, now like tiers of guns, or basking in the hot sunshine all through the long summer day, inviting you to come and rest upon them, and take a long look over the broad landscape that lies spread out far below. Lancashire, it is true, does not boast any famous or striking waterfalls. Even at the beautiful Skellith Force, and it is very beautiful in its full power, the Braithy leaps a mere fifteen feet. But Lancashire has hundreds of beautiful cascades in the deep clefts of her grit hills, where the alternation of hard sandstone and soft shale gives us a long succession of varied waterfalls, which make beautiful subjects for photography. Sometimes the avalanche of debris from above, the detritus of the ever-weathering grit, will block the course of a stream so effectually that it is bound perforce to eat its way back into the hill in order to pass the obstacle. The cliff so formed is continually cut back by the undermining action of the stream at its foot and the denudation above, so that as you pass up a clough you may find it suddenly widen to what Mr. Bolton has described as a sylvan amphitheatre, the bottom of which is filled with a level tract of bog or meadowland, covered with ferns and trees, and bounded by the stream, which margins on the opposite side a tall cliff festooned with trailing ivy, honeysuckle, ferns, and flowering plants. If we follow these streams down into the lower lands, we come upon fascinating illustrations of river denudation, which, watched in its effects year after year, is a constant source of interest. To the fresh glad music of these streams, which is never hushed, except when they are ice-bound, are added, as the seasons advance, the songs and calls of the moorland birds. Up the mountain streams we meet the white-breasted dipper, watch the sandpiper making his quaint bows, or find the grey wagtail nesting close to the waterside, leaving his cousins, the pied and yellow wagtails, far below in the meadows. From some rock hard by the mountain blackbird, the ring oozel, the bird with the white crescent on his breast, pours a joyous song to his mate upon the nest. If, having climbed to the top, we chance to fall asleep among the heather, we may be awakened by the sweet low whistle of the golden plover, or the rippling call of the curlew, and may open our eyes to see the birds close at hand, or to watch the kestrel hover over the valley, or listen to the bleating of the snipe, or the less musical go-back of the grouse, while the white feathers of the wheat here flash along the walls, the pipits pipe their descending song on all hands, and their common enemies, the cuckoos, answer one another continually across the deep valleys. It is fitting that we should say our last word about Lancashire from the edge of some bold escarpment of one of her moorland solitudes, once perhaps part of an ancient forest, from which we look down, possibly, on the solid stone-built house of one of the old Lancashire yeomen, while further afield the eye roams over a forest of chimneys covering the plain, and in the far distance gleam the ships that carry the products of Lancashire's industries to the ends of the earth. Fitting that we should remember again Ruskin's words about the ever-springing flowers, 
and as we think through the story of lancashire once more and remember the unnamed millions who have helped to make her what she is and yet are not commemorated by any of the statues or memorials that stand in her many streets and squares and call to mind also the obelisk that was erected during the great war when so many ships were being sunk and stands by the waterside on the landing stage at liverpool bearing no single name and yet commemorating for ever the valour of the men down in the engine-room as we remember all this we may perhaps imagine that we hear these unnamed heroes and helpers of lancashire say as wordsworth wrote in the last of his sonnets on a lancashire river enough if something from our hand have power to live and act and serve the future hour end of lancashire by francis archibald bruton